0: Where is my amen corner at this morning? Romans chapter 11. Amen. There, there it is. I found it. Thank you, Charvel. Keep it coming. I need your help today. I'm still getting over this sickness, so the more the merrier. Verse 11 through, or verse, uh, Romans 11, uh, chapter 11, verse Thirteen through verse 22. If you could stand with me and let's read together the Word of God. I'll read it. If you could just listen as I read it over you. It says this. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For... If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches if you are remember it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in that is true they were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith so do not become proud but fear For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then, the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Father, we ask that You speak to us this morning this passage that you would help us to be humble God that we would never presume upon your grace and your mercy I pray that you would help me to speak your truth not merely my ideas That you would open our hearts to receive your word that we would be shaped and fashioned by it into the likeness of Jesus it's in his name we pray amen I want to preach you this morning on this old line, there but the grace of God go I. There but the grace of God go I. This story, as I read it in his biography, so highlighted that phrase for me and it so encouraged me in the gospel. On February 7th, 1970, around 6.30 p.m., African-American pastor John Perkins received word that his friends had been pulled over and arrested in Plain, Mississippi by white police officers and they had committed no crime They had been beat and they had been taken to the county jail simply for being black in plain Mississippi. Pastor Perkins quickly drove himself to the county jail. And as he pulled up, he asked if he could speak with the sheriff. They said, yeah, hold on a second, we'll go get him. He said the sheriff did not come out but 12 officers came out and ambushed pastor perkins and he said the beating began before he even got inside the building as they dragged him and beat him he said his nightmare only grew worse inside the county jail perkins along with his friends and fellow uh, ministers were beat kicked, punched, and stomped. Bystanders, A bystander student later told Perkins that the officer was beating Perkins so hard that the officer's shirt tail came out. Perkins says that he covered his head with his arms as the stomping and the beating continued as the officers kicked his head and his ribs and his face. And then he said he remembers an officer taking a fork and sticking it up his nose and then down his throat and then continuing to beat, uh, to, to beat John Perkins. He doesn't know exactly how long it went on because he was unconscious for most of the time and he would regain consciousness and then go out again. And when it was all said and done, he said his friend Curry suffered even more. Perkins, in his biography, says that he remembers the faces of these officers. So twisted, he says, with wickedness. He said, he, he said they looked like white-faced demons. And he said when he looked at these officers, he saw what hate does to a man. He said the only thing that, had, that, that, that made them feel worthy was their their own hatred and their own racism against us. He says their racism made them feel like somebody. And as he saw how hate consumes a man, in that moment, Perkins said, and this is where as I was reading it, I got emotional, Perkins said that he could not hate back. And as he lay there on that jail cell floor, bloodied and beaten, he prayed this prayer. He said, God, if you're willing to let me get out of this jail alive, I want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. He said, maybe I was trying to make a deal with God. But while uh, the other students that were there watching this thought he was dead, he said he did, in fact, come out alive of that jail cell. And he said when he came out alive, he came out with a new call, and that was to preach the gospel to whites as well. He said the Spirit of God worked on me. And he said he understood that Christ understood what it was like to suffer. And he said when that mob came at Christ and Christ hung on that cross, Christ looked at them and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He saw this gospel pity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as he goes on a couple months later, he had a heart attack as a result of the beatings that he took that night. And he said the bitterness began to seep back in. But then he, as he lay there in the hospital get, uh, bed, the, Lord, uh, uh, the Spirit of God ministered to him once again and encouraged him in this gospel call to take the gospel to all people, even these enemies. And he said as he lay there in that hospital bed, he, and as he was reminded of how unjustly he was treated, what he said was this, and I quote, he said, I realized that I was just as sinful as those who beat me. Man. You know what made John Perkins' ministry great? He's still alive today. He's very old. I've met him once. What made his ministry great is gospel humility. It's to say, there but the grace of God go I. To look at our enemies. To look at our oppressor. To look at those who harm us. To look at the rejecters of God. You know, to look at those who have rejected the image of Christ. The image of God imprinted on you. And to have pity. True pity. That's humility. That is gospel humility. Now, I tell you that story to kind of set the stage for our passage today. Because what I want us to do is see this passage and recognize that Paul is calling the Gentile believers toward this kind of true humility as they look at the Jews who have rejected God, as they look at those who have fallen far from God, he wants them not to become arrogant toward the Jews, but to say, there but the grace of God go I. In chapters 9 through 11, uh, we've been working through this and gave you a little overview last week, but just as a reminder, in chapters 9 through 11, We're dealing with this question what about israel you know because all of romans 1 through 8 is about the gospel of jesus christ and how the gospel has come apart from the law of moses and we receive salvation not through ethnicity not through being part of the jewish family but because we have faith in the lord jesus christ and then that brings up this question for particularly their day as they're thinking about well wait a second so many jews uh, in, in their day, have rejected Christ and have you know, rejected the Messiah, what about them? In other words, has God failed the Jews in this great messianic age? Well, uh, the answer is no, God has not failed the Jews. And as a matter of fact, what we see here in chapter 11 is that God uh, has a bigger plan. And that even the Jews' rejection of the Messiah is part of God's bigger plan to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, think about it. Paul would go uh, into a new town, and he would uh, every time he would walk into a synagogue and try to preach to the Jews. And more and more over time, he was rejected from the synagogues. Now, what did that mean? He leaves the synagogue. Where does he go? to the Gentiles you see this whole the Jews rejected Jesus and that took the gospel to the Gentiles it's just a practical reality of the narrative of how the gospel went to the Gentiles and that became the pattern so much so that in verse 13 Paul says I am the Apostle of the Gentiles but he has a heart for the Jews and and here he he, he says uh, he anticipates the future uh, when when uh, Jews will be will be saved, look at verse fifteen, he says, "For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? now we 're going to talk about this more next week uh, in the next couple verses. But what he 's saying here, just as a quick overview, is if the the rejection uh, of the Jews has been a blessing for the Gentiles has caused the gospel to go to the nations. How much more so will it be a blessing when they, as he says, uh, accept Christ? meaning he has this future anticipation that there will be this great majority of Jews that someday Israel who will return to Christ and re- receive Christ, and he says that it will be it will mean life from the dead. And scholars debate what that means, but I think the most literal meaning of that is a, a, a picture of the coming resurrection of the saints. That's typically what that phrase means in the Bible. So what most scholars, or what many believe, and we'll, again we'll deal with this next week, is that just before the end of history, just before the great resurrection of all people, there will be some kind of mass evangelism and acceptance of Israel, uh, of the Jews, uh, as, they, as they come back to the Messiah. Now, um, Paul has a heart, even in his day, he knows that that's not going to happen during his lifetime, but even still he has a heart for the, uh, that some might be saved today. It's sort of like this, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you can imagine like you have a heart for a particular community and you want to see them come to Christ, but God keeps giving you fruit in a different community. I think that was Paul's sort of realization was like, I really want to see my Jewish brothers come to Christ, but I'm like the apostle to the Gentiles. But, but that's not to say that he doesn't care. So he says, I magnify my ministry, meaning uh, it's more than just the Gentiles. I'm doing, I'm doing something intentionally to try to save some of my Jewish brothers. And what is that? Well, he says he, he's, he's acting in such a way, verse 14, in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. Don't you know that when a kid doesn't want something to eat, doesn't, and, and, you're, and you're like, oh, fine, you don't get it. This is really, you know, like the other day, I took this boys trip uh, with Kearney and my two boys. And uh, had, uh, Chapman wanted Doritos, and I got Pringles. And he was like, I hate Pringles. I want Doritos, I hate Pringles. And I was like, fine, we're just gonna eat the Pringles all by ourselves. And I'm like, ooh, this is so good. These Pringles are really good. And he's like, and he's like I want some of that. You know, you, Christ is good. I'm taking the gospel to the Gentiles. I want you guys to display how good Christ is so that they might become jealous, so they might say, hey, you know, as, as, as the lost are looking at our community and they're seeing this gospel-shaped community where there's no guilt, where there's no shame, where nobody's trying to prove something of themselves. You know, where we just come together in love for one another and acceptance because we're accepted by God. Because we have the Messiah. And because we treasure Christ together. And we say, He's so good. Taste and see. Christ is so good. And the Jews are like, I want some of that. That's Paul's strategy. He's trying to make them jealous in a good way gospel jealousy so that they might turn to Christ now but he, here is the predicament why do the Jews need to be made jealous at all I mean think about this Jesus was a Jew can we just wrap our minds around that he can't Jesus came with the literal blood of Abraham he was of the line of David. The long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And so the predicament is this. Why do they need to be made jealous at all? Like Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is, is the Jewish hope. He's the hope of Israel. He's the fulfillment of the covenants. He's what they've been looking forward to for 2,000 years. And, 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 they, and they missed it. Why? Well, the answer is because they presumed upon God's grace. The answer is they assumed His mercy. The answer is they assumed that because of their ethnicity, because of their bloodline, because of their morality, because of their traditions, that it was impossible for them to miss the Messiah. And you see, this Messiah came along and what they didn't realize was that not only did they need a Messiah, they needed a savior. But the Jews of Paul's day, when I say the Jews of Paul's day, I'm talking about the majority. You know, Paul himself was a Jew. There were many that were saved. But I'm talking in the way that Paul talks. And Paul, Paul says Israel of his day did not need, think they needed a Savior. They were content with themselves, and with their traditions, and with their law. Now, this is why I really, one of the reasons I should say, I really like chapter 11. Because it's easy for us To look at all of this and to look at, you know, uh, 9 through 11 and say, oh, well, we wouldn't be like that. Man, how could they be like that? We wouldn't be like that. And so Paul now, what he does is he's looking right at the Gentiles and he's like, let me talk to you guys for a second. Because we've been talking about Israel, we've been talking about the Jews' rejection. Let me talk to you for a second because you need to hear something. You need to hear something that's going to sober you up a little bit. And so in order to to do so, he uses an analogy. First, uh, he uses an analogy of dough. And in verse 13, he says, or verse, uh, verse 16, he says, if the dough... Offered as first fruits is holy. So is the lump. So he's he's saying here, you know, if 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 we have this big lump of dough and we take a a section of it and we offer that to God and we consecrate that, then it consecrates the whole uh, the whole lump. This would have been an analogy that they would have been very familiar with in their ceremonial traditions. If the root, now he uses a, a, a olive tree analogy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, the root here is a reference to the Jewish patriarchs, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know this because in verse 28, he uh, talks about the forefathers. He says that God loved Israel for the sake of their forefathers, and so he's connecting this idea of the root with the patriarchs of Israel, and not just the men themselves, but rather everything that the forefathers represent, this entire covenantal relationship that God made with Israel. And so he's saying that if, you know, the Old Testament, all right, if the Old Testament, if all of this, if the, if, if the, if the religion of Israel is right, if it's good, if it's holy, then all of the branches are holy, simple logic. But, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, you see where he's going with this analogy. If some of the branches, so the branches here would be a uh, a reference to the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day. As long as they're connected to the root, they're good. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So in Paul's analogy, the unbelieving Jews are the broken off branches and the Gentiles are considered to be a wild olive shoot. Now, a wild olive shoot was notoriously unfruitful. They did not survive. They did not produce fruit. And so what he's saying is is God took something that had no hope of ever being fruitful, and he grafted that shoot into the olive tree, the holy root. Now, horticulturists debate as to whether or not that's even possible supposedly many people say it's not possible and they're like paul is clearly uh uh, giving evidence for the fact that he did not grow up in a rural context but he this is his urban roots and he didn't know anything about gardening well i don't think paul's intent here is to teach us about horticulture he's allowing his theology to shape an analogy like all all preachers do it doesn't matter, you know. Sometimes people come up to me and they're like, you know, your analogy was off. I was like, I don't care. That wasn't my point. My theology was making the analogy, you know, not the other way around. And so what Paul's saying is, is God did the impossible. God took something that would be fruitless and grafted it into the fruit-bearing beautiful olive tree of Israel, of true Israel, which we've established in Romans 9. We're part of the family now. It's amazing. And and then in verse 18, at the end there, he makes his main exhortation. Look at this. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. You see, the, the, the Gentiles saw the Jews fall and they, may, they, they probably shook their heads and said, ah, I can't believe it. And what Paul's saying is, be careful. Be careful of your spiritual pride because you too are now in danger of committing the same sin that they committed and that is spiritual entitlement you see church in the same way it's so easy for us to look at Romans chapter 9 through 11 and say how could the jews have missed it how could they have gotten so close to the messiah and have missed it well what he's saying is this is that we can be tempted toward the same sin paul is saying don't be arrogant about the branches meaning don't look down on them and believe that you are not susceptible to commit the same error. And we, we often see this played out when, when somebody falls. You know the story, a, a prominent Christian pastor, a prominent uh, Christian author, a prominent Christian musician or singer or rapper who, uh, who falls away they, they sometimes fall into some kind of big sin, uh, and then eventually it comes out that they are no longer a Christian, at least not that kind of Christian, and they've, they've fallen away from Jesus, and they no longer believe in the authority of the Scriptures. They no longer believe in, 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 uh, in Jesus Christ as the only sufficient Savior. They've fallen away, and it's so easy for us to look at them and be arrogant toward them and shake our heads, and say, oh, how could they do that? Oh, I would never do that. Why? Because I'm morally superior. Because I'm better than they are. Because I'm stronger than they are. Because I love my church more than they are. Because I do the right things more. I'm more committed. I read my Bible every day. I do, I do, I do. I am, I am, I am. Therefore, I am not like them. You see, uh, Leon Morris said that pride is not just simply saying, I am wonderful. Pride is saying, I am more wonderful than them. The opposite of this is humility. The opposite of this is to look at someone who has fallen away from Christ and to say, There, but the grace of God go I. To fall on our knees and trembling. There, but the grace of God go I. It's said of John Bradford 500 years ago. He, he was standing with the crowd and they were watching a procession of prisoners who were being led to their execution. And the, clou- the crowd was sneering and the crowd was jeering and the crowd was cheering. And John Bradford had a very different kind of response. As these murderers and criminals walked by to their death, John Bradford was solemn. And he simply said this, There but the grace of God go I. Meaning if it is not for God's grace on my life, I would be one of them. I'm not better than them. I'm not superior to them. I'm clinging on to the grace of God. How? can we guard ourselves against spiritual entitlement? Two antidotes I want to give you from this text. Number one, knowing the grace of God. And number two, knowing the fear of God. Let's let's break these down real quick. Verse 18, knowing the grace of God. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches if you are. Remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. What he's saying is, is look, you're not helping out God by being a Christian. You're not supporting uh, the patriarchs because of your great faithfulness. The root doesn't need you. God doesn't need any of us. Like, you, I'm not Uh, 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 because I'm a pastor of this church and because I'm a Christian and because I try to share my faith with other people, I'm not like helping God in some fashion as if God needs me. But what he's saying is is that the root of who God is and His work through the patriarchs, the, the historic faith delivered once and for all, that faith supports me. I'm in that. And so he's he's correcting our arrogance here and our, our pride. You were one untimely born. You had no hope. You had no claim to the promises of God. But God, being rich in mercy, grafted you in. Verse 19, he says, but then you will say. He's kind of arguing with this straw man then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Almost like, uh, you know, God saw me as this beautiful, cute, little, uh, 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 wild olive shoot. And God thought, oh, I want that one. That's nice. I mean, you know, it's going to struggle, but that's a nice olive shoot. And so he looked at the tree and he said, You know, I'm going to have to make some room. And so he broke off some branches so that he could graft you in. And Paul's saying, No, that's not how it works. He says, Yes, he says, some branches were broken off, verse 20. Not because of you, not because God had to make room for you. Some were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. And you are only here because of your belief. You see the warning there? or I'll read it the way he says it. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Meaning you're not here because you did something or because you're morally superior. You are here by grace through faith. Not of your own doing. Not of works. Lest no man should boast. Faith in what? Faith in who? Well, listen, the Christian life is all about our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life begins with our story being that of depravity. Sinful depravity. And many of us don't fully understand the gospel. You will never fully understand the gospel. If you don't understand the depravity that we are born into. This is why so many people reject the gospel. This is why so many people don't cherish Christ is because they don't understand what they were. They don't understand total depravity. But we were born utterly sinful with no hope in this world. We did not love God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ, the God-man, to live among us. And Jesus lived the life of utter uh, obedience before God. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. And then Jesus died the death that you and I should have died. And then Jesus rose again from the dead. And what happened was this, was God put our sin on Him at His death. And He paid the price for your sin debt. And when He rose from the dead... He conquered sin and He conquered death so that we might have life. And He looks across the cavern of death and He says, Come to Me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. How do you become a Christian? Turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, Well, don't I have to do something? There's nothing you can do to earn it. Don't I have to be a certain kind of person? There's no kind of person that you can be. To earn it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you say, well, that sounds too easy. Well, then do it. If it's so easy, turn to Christ now. And the only reason you're able to do that is because God has given you faith. Amen. So therefore, listen, he's saying That we are saved by grace through faith. By grace alone. Through faith alone. The point is, is that we must not lose sight of God's grace. And that's because we must not lose our faith. Do you guys understand that the work of the church, the local church in the Bible, is primarily Helping each other maintain the faith and build the faith. Like we try to, you know, we, you get some churches and pastors that get big whiteboards and they're like, we're going to figure out what we're going to do. And like it's a big strategy meeting and all of these, like what's, what's our church about? Does anybody even know? You know, and we, we approach it like a business. No, we're a family of brothers and sisters, and the primary job we have to each other is to help each other stay in the faith, to grow in our faith with each other. You know, what a great travesty it is when somebody believes that somebody else is good to go. You know, whether that's me because I'm the one that preaches every Sunday, or another one of our elders, or somebody else that just seems to be more spiritual, or maybe you've only been a Christian for six months, and you're like, well, you know, how can I help Somebody that's been a Christian for six years. That's a travesty. Because we, we, we you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is the greatest chapter on uh, spiritual gifts. You know why we have spiritual gifts according to 1 Corinthians 13? They will one day cease. When that which is perfect comes, when Christ comes again, spiritual gifts will be no more in heaven. We don't need them in heaven because we have Christ, because we will see Christ face to face. Why do we need spiritual gifts now? It's because now we see Christ through a glass dimly. Now we see him not face to face, but we see him through faith. And our spiritual gifts that are given to all of God's people are given so that we might help each other see Christ through faith. care about the faith of your brothers and sisters. Care about your own faith. A couple quick application points on this. One, make church gatherings a priority. Like Sundays, you know, Wednesday Bible study, and and if if you're part of an accountability group or a one-on-one meeting, like make church gatherings a priority. Secondly, Aim for deeper conversations with each other. And I don't necessarily mean that we're just like, you know, trying to be each other's therapists, but I mean like deeper, uh, deeper theologically, you know, deeper biblically. Don't just stay on the surface and talk about football, but, but talk about faith. You know, and recognize when you're looking at that individual that, that, that they need to retain this Faith and care about that deeply. Number three, participate in church discipline. Meaning when somebody's falling away from Christ and we're called to go after that sheep that's falling away, go after the sheep that's falling away. Don't just assume somebody else is gonna do it, but feel that kind of responsibility to make that phone call, to knock on that door, and to pursue their faith. Number four, if you're not a member of the church, join the church. You know, membership is not just some kind of sentimental thing. Membership is actually submis- submission to one another. It's saying, "I need somebody to, to to watch over my faith. I need to be in the kind of relationships where I can help watch over the faith of others in a very intentional kind of way." When we assume our faith is on autopilot, we are in danger. When we assume our brothers and sisters, faith is good to go and they don't need us, we are in danger. I've seen it time and time again where you get a passionate new believer of sorts. They're believing some of these things and they're very passionate and they come to everything. They come Sunday mornings and they're at Bible study on Wednesday nights and they join an accountability group and they do this and they, they're meeting up with people. And, and then over time, that sense of desperation begins to fade and they become complacent. And they assume their faith is on autopilot. They assume their faith is good to go and we stop seeing them. We don't see them at some things. They stay home. They don't prioritize the gatherings of the church. Their Sunday morning attendance becomes sporadic. They're no longer in an accountability group. And I've seen it time and time again, church, and they drift away. And they end up falling away from Jesus. What I'm saying is is we've got to be very intentional about ourselves and our own faith and about the faith of each other. Are you with me? All right, secondly, just two points here. Number one, knowing the grace of God. Number two, knowing the fear of God. Look at verse 20. Second part of verse 20, he says, So do not become proud, but fear. For if God, verse 21, did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 22, Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. He's saying if, if an ethnic Jew who is a literal inheritor, literal inheritor of the promises of Abraham is eternally cut off because of their unbelief, He's saying, you too will be cut off. Now, this is maybe the strongest warning in the Bible for Christians to persevere in their faith. And it can be confusing at first because one of the questions that everybody asks is, well, does this mean that a genuine Christian can lose their salvation? if they fail to continue in their belief? Well, the answer is certainly not. Paul has already made it clear in Romans 8 that those who are truly saved will, Romans 8, 29 and 30, will be glorified. God will not lose anybody in the process. So what does this mean? Well, on one hand, what we can understand is this, is that anybody who does ultimately fall away and are cut off according to the analogy here, were never truly saved. They were never a genuine Christian in the first place. But, but, I don't want us to just say that and miss Paul's intended impact for genuine believers. So I can think of two applications here. One is this it urges false Christians to examine their faith. You might be a false Christian. Now check it out. Every false Christian at one time thought they were a legit Christian. Think about that. So Paul's saying, examine your faith. Is it genuine? Are you trusting in Jesus only? Or are you trusting in yourself? Secondly, This propels true Christians to persevere. It is a a means of God's keeping us. Let me use an analogy. Let's say that we were all in a bomb shelter. Our new building, 1500 Druid Hill, let's just say we were in there, all right? That's pretty much a bomb shelter, you know. uh, when, when, When the bombs start flying, find me there, you know, We'll figure it out, all right? Imagine there's nuclear war happening all around us and we're in a bomb shelter and somebody says, don't leave this shelter. If you leave it, you will die. True story. True statement, rather. If you leave the shelter, you will die. Now, that very warning comes to you and acts as a means of keeping you in the shelter. So it's true to say that if you fall away from Jesus, if you give up on Christ and you reject Christ, that you will die. True statement for everybody. However, that statement, as true as it is for the genuine Christian, that statement becomes the very means of their perseverance. Perseverance. To keep them in Christ. To keep them in the shelter. So how do we conquer then our spiritual entitlement? Knowing the grace of God and knowing the fear of God. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell. Church, listen as we close, pride feeds off of your goodness. Somebody called pride the dandelion of the soul. And what they meant was that dandelions feed off good soil and their roots go deep. And just a little bit left behind is going to cause for a sprouting of more dandelions. They will find the tiniest crack and they flourish in the good soil. And, And they said that the danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. When you see somebody fall away from God, don't be proud. Don't be arrogant toward them. Don't feel like, oh, I'm so good. That would never happen to me. Charles Spurgeon said, be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. We are not saved by anything other than the sheer grace of God. And after a million years in heaven, we will still not be saved by anything other than the sheer grace of God. Somebody say amen. Uh, Listen, so often I hear then people say this in response to this message, and it would be the wrong response. I hear people walk out and and, and they they say, I know i got to focus on me. And what I'm saying is this, no, you've got to stop focusing on you. You've got to stop focusing on the obstacles. And you've got to start focusing on Christ and on Christ alone. Is somebody with me? When I was in high school, my brother and I would snowboard down a a wooded hill. Uh, we would just be flying through these trees and dodging trees, and it was so much fun and so exhilarating. <coughs> I'm okay. <clears throat> Sorry, that was nasty. I'm uh, still getting over the sickness. Doctor said I'm not contagious. Actually, a uh, would be doctor, hopefully, uh, Zach Keepers, and uh, he says it's just a lingering um, cough. Anyway. Uh, so, so we would be, uh, we could edit that part out, by the way, on the audio. Um, we, we, we would be flying down these trees, and, and then it wasn't until I was like an adult later, and I thought, I could have died. That was very dangerous. Like, Sonny Bono died doing the same thing, flying down a, uh, it's called glade skiing, where you ski off the pathway, and uh, you, you're just trying to dodge trees and and it reminded me i i read this a couple years ago from a glade skier and they said do you know how you don't die uh glade skiing they said this is how as you're going down you know the side of the hill going through all these trees they said don't focus on the trees focus on the path If you focus on the trees, you will die. But if you focus on the path, you'll hit the path. If you focus on the obstacles, you will die. But if you focus on the path, you will live. And here's the crazy thing about our path. Who is, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the path. He is our life. Here is the crazy thing about our path that, we can, that causes us to praise God. It is this. It is as we focus on the path, we can have the assurance that the path will keep us on the path. We can have assurance that we will not fall, that we will not fail, because He is able to, Now how many of you know that Christ is life? How many of you understand that as we focus on Christ and as we are in Christ, that we will not crash? Our obstacles won't destroy us. Because He is able to keep us. He's able to preserve us. He's able to sustain us. And so our fight then to remain in Christ is simply this. It's to magnify Christ. It's to see Christ as glorious and to praise Him and to say, He's able to keep me from falling. He's able to present me faultless before His glory. And so, to Him be the glory and majesty and power and dominion, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Christ is able. And God, we pray that as we go from here, that we will cling to His grace, that we will cling to His mercy, and that we will know that Christ is worth it, that He is worth it, that we will know that our our faith and pursuing our faith is worth it. That we will be the kind of people that not only care for our own faith, but we care for the faith of our brothers and sisters. Do a work in us, do a work in our church for your glory and for your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.